Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Cuz We're Nerds. This is Caleb. Unfortunately, due to some technical snafus, we lost the original recording for Zach's side of the episode. Fortunately, we had a backup. But this backup isn't up to our standards. We hope you won't judge us too harshly. We promise to make sure our audio is top-notch for future episodes. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Cause We're Nerds, the podcast that covers trends and new releases from comics to movies, video games, board games, and much more. I'm your host, Zach, and with me is my co-host and cousin, Caleb. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the road to Marvel's Infinity War, where we will be discussing each MCU movie in order, all leading up to Marvel's Infinity War movie releasing this May. Today, we dive into the movie that many don't realize is an MCU movie. The Incredible Hulk. How does this Hulk compare to the train wreck in 2003 or to the first Avengers? Was Edward Norton the best Bruce Banner? And why was this not the ultimate goal of both Norton and the director in the final cut of the movie that we see? Find out the answers to these questions and much more on Cuz We're Nerds, Road to Marvel's Infinity War. So, The Incredible Hulk, hulking its way onto screen. <laughs> so this this movie came out only, what, a month after Iron Man? Yeah, so last time, uh, I think I actually at one point said it came out two months, but it was actually only one month later. Yeah, what a disgrace. Come on, Caleb. One month. <laughs> only one month after. <sighs> There's you too know, many that was movies. A, <laughs> I mean, it's true. Thinking back, that was a great, great summer for superhero movies. You had Iron Man, you had The Hulk, you had... Um, the Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, any others I'm missing? Uh, those are the big ones. And my memory was that The Dark Knight came out before this movie. It actually came out a month later. So we mm-hmm. had one uh, fairly big movie, you know, every month for that whole summer. So I know we had talked about this a little bit in our uh, previous podcast, is that uh, The Incredible Hulk was one of three movies slated by Marvel in this kind of gamble of relaunching some of their characters and Kevin Feige, our hairstylist, getting kind of impromptu Mr. President and uh, overseeing these. Yeah, that's true. It was one of the first movies that they set out production on, along with Iron Man and Ant-Man. So how did this movie kind of, I guess, come to fruition? So, well, I guess we first have to start with our 2003 movie before we get to slathering body paint on a muscle man and back in the seventies. But if we touch first on this Hulk of 2003, how did we get to, I guess that point B to point C for the incredible Hulk in 2008? Yeah. So the first big Hulk movie, the first big Hollywood Hulk movie was Hulk, uh, as you know, which was released in 2003. Uh, This was one of those movies that Marvel licensed out and they let another company make it. So Marvel was involved in some respects, but it wasn't their ship to steer. Which makes sense. Once I mean, once you see the movie, and I don't know about you, but I remember seeing the movie um, not 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 in theaters. I was I was a bit too young, but um, I remember watching it in a hotel room. My parents were like, "Hey, let's let's watch this movie," and I wasted like an hour and a half of my life that I'll <laughs> never get back. Now, who is the director of this movie? Of the two thousand three one. Correct. Yeah. Uh, Ang Lee 
it was his movie. So had Ang Lee done a lot of, I mean, movies beforehand? I'm not familiar with that director. Um, You know, I know his name. I don't know his filmography exactly, but I think he was a pretty big uh, action movie star. So he had a resume. He was a pretty big get for this movie. Um, I think what a lot of people don't like about the movie is his artistic vision. Uh, he's more of a filmmaker and not a comic book enthusiast, which by no means is a bad thing. I think that can actually make better movies. For sure. But uh, I think that what he did with the movie was more artsy than what people wanted. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree with it. And as you know, the after the release of the movie, it came out to – um not not the highest reviews not yeah. the highest critic ratings yeah they were very mixed mostly negative yeah commercially wise too it it didn't gross what i guess the company was hoping for as well yeah the return wasn't as big as it was for say you know spider-man or x-men um but it still made money um so i mean for this that movie in particular was that your first exposure to the Hulk? I know you mentioned last time that you'd read some comic books before Iron Man came out. Were you familiar with him at that point? You know, I was familiar with them, um, but again, only in the only mainly in the crossovers on Marvel's two and ones um, when they had a mainly. As I mentioned before, I read a lot of Fantastic Four, so they had a rivalry going between the Thing and the Hulk. Um, the Thing being a human who has was hit by. Um, I guess galaxy rays is what you can say force rays and has now changed into a rock figure, rock man. So in the comics, there was a lot of conflict between him and the Hulk. Who's the strongest. Sometimes the Hulk would win. Sometimes he would win. And it was always kind of up in the air. So anyways, that was kind of like my um, knowledge of the Hulk. Um, I'd also seen him just in crossovers with Bruce Banner, but you know, I, I hadn't really picked up a Hulk comic and read it. I think I tried to once and it was just so boring. I put it back down. Um, but being a Spider-Man fan, did you have a lot of interaction with the Hulk? I knew who he was, and I think a lot of that has to do with his popularity at the time with the, pretty much the world. He had that 70s TV show, which was mm-hmm. very, very popular. And so a lot of people around the world knew who the Hulk was, even if that was the only exposure they had to the character. So I don't know if it was through that or if it was through the 90s cartoon or uh other things maybe video games but i knew who he was uh i knew the gist of what he could do um but i didn't know you know this movie takes a few liberties with what he can do specifically he grows more as he gets angry and to my knowledge that's never been something in the comics maybe it was for a short time um so I, i didn't know the specifics of what was correct and what wasn't but i did know of the character True. You know, and that brings up a good point. I think it it kind of set the stage then um, for audience to know who the Hulk was, right? So we had that TV show in the 70s that got him exposure and then morphing that into some of the cartoons um, that we saw in the 90s and then in the movie in 2003. So I guess it wasn't necessarily out of left field that they would go ahead and reboot the franchise and specifically this franchise, the Hulk franchise, and shoot for it in 2008, which was only five years later. Yeah, this was Marvel's first big reboot, as far as I know. 
you know, we mentioned how they had several movies prior to this that were licensed out. And this is the first one that a different studio had made that Marvel regained the rights to and that they made their own version of. Which leads us into kind of the how this production got started. And you'd mentioned the director in our last podcast, Louis Leterre. It's uh, I think actually Leterrier. Last time Leterrier. I had no idea how to pronounce it. I looked it up and I completely forgot. So this time I made a point. I believe it's Louis Leterrier. Leterrier. Okay. So they got a Frenchman to play the Green Hulk. To, to direct him. <laughs> no, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so Le, Leterrier. Now, was he under the supervision of Kevin Feige himself or no? Uh, like all the Marvel directors he was, I believe he was hired before Kevin Feige took the reins. I think he was hired when Avi Arad was still around, but Kevin Feige was still involved. And then certainly when Kevin Feige became uh, the head for Marvel Studios, he was definitely under Kevin Feige. Now, we'll talk about this uh, in our later podcast when we hit the Avengers, but my assumption is the movie was ma- made, Kevin Feige came in, he saw the Hulk's hair. And, you know, just like the last podcast, he's like, no, this, this can't happen. Pulled out, you know, a comic out of his other pocket, the one he kept near, near the Wolverine one, shows him, like, look, the Hulk doesn't have this long, flowing, luscious black locks of hair. And so they right. changed that. But, okay, I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. You know, he came in, and this time he actually did cut out the panel, and he just stuck it on the computer screen, and he said, just put that in there. That's it. <laughs> it makes sense. It makes sense. Now, Luterrier, I guess, came on board with the – uh, draft that Zach Penn had wrote. Now, um, I'm, I'm not exactly certain. Somebody up in in Marvel, presumably whoever was head before Feige, actually approached Zach Penn to draft a script um, of a Hulk movie, right? But this wasn't supposed to be a reboot. In fact, this was actually supposed to be a sequel of the 2003 movie that we got. Yeah, it, the script went through various stages. Um, you're at, you're right. It was originally envisioned as a sequel to the 2003 movie. There were even some actors from that movie that were signed on for this film. And then through the years, the rights kind of did some things and they went back to Marvel. But even before that, it went from being a sequel to kind of a loose sequel to a loose reboot to when Marvel got it. It was a reboot that maybe could have happened with the other movie in continuity and maybe couldn't. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately as we got, you know, it's just a reboot. So we get Bruce Banner played by Edward Norton in this movie. And what I can tell from the backstory is that Marvel actually first approached Edward Norton, who just turned down the role like outright. Um, But Marvel like insisted. And so they actually pursued him even more and suggested that he go ahead and meet with Luterrier. And so Norton kind of relented in that fact. And apparently in that visioning behind the scenes meeting of Luterrier and Norton, Norton kind of cast his vision of the Hulk story. So apparently he had already thought, been thinking about this. And it is recorded that Marvel agreed to hire A, a screenwriter, and B, to let Norton and the screenwriter both kind of rewrite Penn's draft and as we'll also kind of later talk about for this movie is that MCU, the uh, Marvel actually kind of went back on some of their promises is that they actually never ended up hiring that screenwriter uh, and Norton himself like solely did a substantial page one rewrite of mostly the entire movie. Yeah. And Norton is kind of notorious for coming on a film 
and taking control of it. He always wants to have that ability to rewrite the script, which I understand on an actor's level because this is, you know, your career, but you can't always be the one that's calling all the shots. And the other interesting thing about this before we get too far is you mentioned that he originally turned down the role. Louis Leterrier actually didn't want to direct the Hulk. He originally was interested in Iron Man, but Jon Favreau had already been hired for that. So they pitched him the Hulk, and he said, okay. And similarly, you know, Norton did it. And so this movie is kind of being made by two people who originally didn't want to make the movie, which Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. Exactly, right? And and, I mean, going back to what you said about Norton kind of taking creative control, uh, he wanted to add a lot of dialogue to the script. I know he added a ton of character motivation. um, And ultimately, Marvel did agree to shoot Norton's draft of the screenplay, But unfortunately, in editing, a lot of that was actually um, taken out. That's true. And we'll probably talk about this a little bit more later. But Edward Norton ended up not getting a writing credit for this film, even though he made substantial changes. And he was actually also making changes on the days of shooting. Uh, He was making changes as late as halfway through shooting. That's correct. I mean, I guess that that leads us straight into the movie to see if, you know, do these changes show during this movie or... Does this movie kind of flow flow pretty well? So uh, you ready to discuss this, the Hulk in the room? <laughs> Let's get into it. All right. I'll go ahead and read us a synopsis first. Scientist Bruce Banner, Edward Norton, desperately seeks a cure for the gamma radiation that contaminated his cells and turned him into the Hulk. Cut off from his true love, Betty Ross, Liv Tyler, and forced to hide from his nemesis, General Thunderbolt Ross, William Hurt, Banner soon comes face to face with a new threat, a supremely powerful enemy known as the Abomination, Tim Roth. So this movie opens with our first kind of origin recap in a Marvel superhero movie. Um, I guess apart from Blade 2, which pretty much recapped the entire first movie. (laughs) But this one recaps specifically his origin and not another movie. What did you think about this? I actually really like this. Um, My concern going, I remember going into this movie was that it was just going to rehash basically the 2003 movie with his origin, but it didn't. Um, And I was pleasantly surprised that within the first uh, three minutes, you knew kind of the origin of Bruce Banner simply through the credit scroll um, at the beginning of the movie. Um, I know some of Marvel's movies have gone that route. For instance, if we just look at Spider-Man Homecoming, right? So it just, he has his powers already. Um, it doesn't go into how he gets them. Um, and so I thought that was a pretty smart move by Luterrier to well, or Norton, or kind of, as we talk about it, whoever whoever wrote that part of the movie to have the movie head in that direction and kind of skip over, um, you know, spending 20, 30, 40 minutes on his origin story. What about you? Yeah, I think this was really smart and really clever. I remember this being at the beginning of the movie, but I didn't remember how much information is actually packed in here. His entire origin, his motivations are all in this opening, which is only three or four minutes long. And there's also some Easter eggs in here. We see a Stark Industries logo. We see uh, a S.H.I.E.L.D. logo, I think, at one point. We see Nick Fury's name. And I'm curious if those were added after Iron Man's success. 
because I know after Iron Man came out and it made so much money, Kevin Feige actively worked to make this movie seem closer to Iron Man. I'm not sure if that's in tone because it doesn't feel like Iron Man or if it's um, in these connections. But I think that those were really fun for fans, especially for me at the time, seeing that and thinking, oh, wow, you know, these things really are connected, trying to, to figure out how they're connected. Yep. But also the opening is really succinct. It conveys everything you need to know and is edited really nicely and very interestingly as well. It really emphasizes that pictures tell a better story over words. Show, don't tell. And another interesting thing is this was not the original opening envisioned for this film. If you look at the DVD, there's a deleted scene, which was actually rumored before the film came out, where he goes to, um, I'm not sure if it's Antarctica, uh, somewhere where, you know, it's covered in snow and ice. And Bruce Banner looks very downtrodden, and he takes out a gun, and he tries to commit suicide. But when he does this... He transforms into the Hulk, which ends up spitting out the bullet. And that scene was cut. It is referenced, actually, in the Avengers. Bruce Banner mentions that he tried to put a bullet in his head and, quote, the other guy spit it out. But it's a very dark opening. And I was surprised that that was the plan originally to go with. Uh, What what do you think about how dark that is? Yeah, you know, I think it fits the tone of this movie. This movie, I didn't think necessarily carried an mcu tone i think if you line this up with all the other movies that we've seen in the mcu this is definitely the darkest movie that you will encounter um and what's interesting about that uh arctic scene is that that was norton's rewrite so again remember how i said that he did a page one rewrite of most the entire movie um he rewrote that first whole five minutes and the idea behind that was that the scene was supposed to add a lot of depth to Norton's character, giving you kind of the watcher, us, uh, a greater understanding of how much Bruce Banner wanted to get rid of his curse, right? He was going to go to all the way over to suicide because he couldn't take it anymore. Now, I know they understandably decided to cut that from the final act. Um, first off, it was five minutes, and that would have pushed you know, the first appearance of the Hulk into way later in the film. Um, which wouldn't have necessarily set well with audiences. But I think mainly they decided to cut it because it, it was just, it set such a dark tone for the movie. And after Iron Man's success, Iron Man, yes, had some bits and pieces, but it was, it was a lighthearted movie, as we talked about in our last podcast, which this is not. I agree. This movie does have a much darker tone. I think there might be some other MCU movies that go darker at specific moments. But in terms of the entire film, I was very surprised. I didn't remember it being so dark. It does feel very different from the rest of the MCU. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I actually think it's to its benefit. There's times where it feels like you know anything can happen. There's times where you see shots and the way things are framed that I don't think you'd see in the MCU movie today, which I really appreciated, you know, going back 17, 18 movies later and rewatching this. Another interesting tidbit is that we talked about the opening and how it went over the origin. They shot 70 minutes of footage for that opening. They weren't sure if it was going to make it in the film. As you Mm -hmm. can see, most of it didn't, but I thought that that was really interesting. I'd love to see some of that footage and see what they shot. And again, that, 
70 minutes that they cut, a lot of that was Edward Norton's rewrite of the script. I mean, even bringing it back to the moment in um, the Arctic that they decided to cut, one of the other reasons they decided to cut it was because it undermines kind of this moment where Bruce Banner jumps out of the helicopter and you're like, oh, he's going to turn to the Hulk and midway through and this is kind of jumping towards the ends, but, you know, midway through, he opens his eyes and he's not turning. And as a viewer, you're going, oh, no, he's not going to turn to Hulk. He's going to hit the ground and die. Um, and it takes away that whole suspense, because if he's already t- tried to shoot himself, you know that there's no suspense there. He's going to hit the ground and turn to the Hulk. And interestingly enough, that scene was not written by Norton. The helicopter scene was written by Penn, and Marvel decided to keep what Penn had wrote above what Norton was writing. Yeah, there's that scene, and there's one other scene specifically, I don't remember which one, that was also written by Penn that was kept from one of those original drafts when it was supposed to be a sequel. That wasn't the only scene also cut from this movie. We should have gotten some flashback sequences that if you actually watch the trailer, trailer you'll see some of them. Um, specifically, I'm talking about when Bruce Banner has a sit-down conversation with the one and only Doc Sampson which, if you're familiar with the comics at all, is himself a superhero. And that storyline was also kind of nixed and cut, even though Norton had added it in to add some more backstory and character development for Bruce Banner. Ultimately, through the editing process, again, they decided to kind of cut that scene and go more with the pen script versus the Norton script. Yeah, and that's all very interesting. Let's go ahead and jump into the really start of the movie. We find... Bruce Banner, and he's living in um, South America, in Brazil. Yep. Uh, and this is kind of an idea that carries over from that 2003 film. That film ended with him in South America, we don't know specifically where, kind of hiding. And even though this is a reboot, they pick up with that idea here, and he's kind of been on the run. And he's trying to find a cure for himself. He doesn't want the Hulk inside of him. Yeah. And what we kind of find out is that he's contacting um, some type of informant, some type of person. We don't really know who. All we know is this person's name is Mr. Blue. Which is interesting. When we do finally meet that character later in the film, I noticed he's wearing blue clothes. And uh, Bruce Banner is referred to as Mr. Green. And... He's wearing green clothes at that point. And this also might be a little nod to Reservoir Dogs. If you've ever seen that film, the characters are named after colors. Yeah, I thought that was a good little uh, nod to that movie. Now, what's interesting is that you kind of have this little uh, moment in the factory that that Bruce Banner is kind of fixing the wiring on the machine. He gets cut his blood drops right and so he stops mm-hmm. he stops the process of of the machine now it's, it's a bottle factory so they're they're making mexican pop i believe um that's or soda for you southern listeners <laughs> that's right he runs down he cleans off his blood and then he leaves now what didn't work for me in that scene was that he like he's methodically checking all these bottles and then when he leaves the camera zooms over to the bottle that has the blood in it and it's pretty clear like as a viewer you can pick out that bottle from a host of 50 other bottles on that rack now obviously it's done in such a way that it's easy for you to pick out but i was like how did come on bruce banner you're supposed to be one of the smartest people in the world and you cannot see blood on a bottle yeah and i've had that issue on previous viewings one thing i noticed this time 
is when he cuts his finger, the blood goes and it drops and it goes down through the grate, which, by the way, that shot took over a year to make. If wow. my memory serves me correctly, it was one of the first things that they started working on, and it was one of the last things they actually inserted into the film. But anyway, as it's falling, that drop of blood, it's subtle, but it actually splits into two different drops. Mm. And so I think what happened is one of the drops landed where he found it. The other one landed several feet away. So it's not really where he would be looking. And that kind of solved that issue for me because I realized it's not that it dropped and part of it hit the side of a bottle and it kept going down or that it dropped and then it splashed a little bit and got on the bottle. But it actually separated and went to two different places. And I think that really helps explain that issue a little bit better but i wish that it would have been a little bit more explicit with that explanation yeah i would agree i mean and from that we kind of get our first i'd say one of the first jokes in the movie right and even though this this movie is rather dark i thought it actually did carry some humor that i really appreciated and i thought that most if not all the jokes actually landed extremely well and Obviously, the first one I'm talking about is also our Stan Lee cameo of the movie, where he reaches in, grabs a pop, um, and it's a rather long cameo. It's I would say it's probably one of the longest ones. He drinks it, you know, does his little, uh, and then uh, <laughs> drops the bottle. <laughs> what I think General Ross says that the pop had a little more kick than he wanted it to. That's true. And, you know, I just thought of this. Recently, it was revealed that stanley can converse with the watchers and it's a theory that he is a watcher if this actually killed him how does that fit in with that theory and and what does that mean maybe as a watcher he can self-replicate maybe he has the soul gem and he is able to (laughs) i I have no idea but (laughs) you know what that's that's really good yeah for those of you that don't know the watchers are a a group of alien beings cosmic beings in the comic books that kind of oversee uh events that happen in various places but really that's not important to this film what's interesting uh about that scene as well is that so okay stanley drinks his blood and then he dies that's fine in the cinematic universe. However, that doesn't necessarily work when you regard the comics. Because if you look at the comics, uh, the Hulk's cousin is She-Hulk. But She-Hulk wasn't born with the Hulk-like powers. Um, instead, she actually um, was saved by Bruce Banner, who she got, I believe, shot by some mobsters. And um, Bruce Banner saved her life by giving her a blood transfusion. And it was through the blood transfusion that she got the powers of the Hulk. That's why she's not as strong as the Hulk, because it's simply blood transfusion. But she is still fairly powerful. So in hindsight, actually, if Stanley drinks that, he should turn into a little mini Hulk himself. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, he, he's getting up there. So maybe his body just couldn't handle it. <laughs> hey, it's Stanley. His body can handle anything. If he can, <laughs> he can handle thousands of nerds every year, he can handle a little, <laughs> little Hulk juice. On that point of kind of the jokes, what did you, I guess, what did you think of the other ones? Because we get our second kind of joke in the movie, uh, not too late after that, when he uh, he kind of saves that girl who's getting picked on by, um, you know, these quote unquote gangsters. Um, and he keeps saying to them, you wouldn't like me when I'm hungry. And they're like, what? And he's like, hungry. <laughs> no, 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 wait, that's not right. Yeah, which is. Again, a callback to that 70s TV show, which is famous for the line, you won't like me when you make me angry or when I'm angry. Um, And 
the the film has a lot of them. Another one, real quick, is that his eyes turn green uh, before he transforms into the Hulk. But mm-hmm. I think the humor for this film it works really well. And this is kind of more how I like my humor in sure. a film, especially a dark film. It's funny and it's there, but it's not like super jokey or super cheesy. Um, you know, Iron Man was very much about the humor. Yes. This movie is not about the humor, but it has humor in it. And that really helps, since it's a dark movie, lighten the tone at times. It helps give you variance. A common complaint of films like The Dark Knight is that there are no jokes. There's no happiness in those worlds. And I think having them here helps keep the audience from feeling depressed. Now, from that, I guess, setting that we find ourselves in, we we see a, the first glimpse of the Hulk, but we don't get a you know a full glimpse. What did, what did you think about the first scene where we actually you know see the Hulk transform? He's getting beaten up. You know, he randomly runs into the gangsters, the mob, as he's getting hunted down. Um, they follow him back to the factory, and then as he's getting attacked, he turns into the Hulk, destroys the mob, you know, the gang members, and then also takes down the team that was taken down to take him down, if that makes (laughs) sense. (laughs) Yeah, so at this point, uh, General Ross has sent in a team to apprehend Bruce Banner, and he kind of runs from them, and like you mentioned, he runs into those gangsters from earlier in the film, and he tries to escape into the balling factory. Now, this scene, it does a lot to try to hide the Hulk from you until they're ready to show him, And I have mixed feelings on this. One of my issues with it is the films that do this, and it happens a lot. Normally, the creature that they're hiding from you, they have shown you in the trailers. And you Mm -hmm. have seen the trailers for months and months up until the release. And you know what it looks like. That's right. So in that regard, it can be a bit frustrating. However, watching the movie, if you haven't seen the trailers, if it's been a long time, I think it works really well. It teases the Hulk. You see bits and pieces of him. You see his foot. I think you see him from the back at one point. And I think it really works because the Hulk is a monster. He's based on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that idea. And, you know, Mr. Hyde is usually portrayed as a villain. And the Hulk originally was portrayed as a monster. So I think this is a really fun callback. I think it's really interesting to try to make us guess what exactly does he look like if you don't already know. And I would, I would probably have to agree with you on that. Um, and it's from that, that we kind of enter and I guess into our second act when the Hulk, um, ends up going to, uh, the college, um, which is it Calvin college, I believe. Uh, I think it's Culver university. Uh, well, we'll cut that piece. <laughs> <laughs> And it's from there where we kind of get our second act and the Hulk ends up in Culver University um, searching for Mr. Blue. And lo and behold, he finds his true love, which you hadn't seen in, in, you know, other than the opening credits. That's true. And I don't I'm not sure how he gets back to the United States after he escapes from that SWAT team. He ends up in Guatemala and you see him begging. And the very next time you see him, he is back in the United States so I don't know if he just caught a cab. I don't think he turned into the Hulk and jumped there. So no, that wasn't. Yeah, I would agree. That wasn't really well explained. It would have worked perfectly if they had just had him, you know, awaken on the United States. Like, oh, look, he's in Utah or some, right. some you know, Arizona, obviously. But but they didn't and whatever. 
I kind of wonder if there's a cut scene there to explain it. Um, but ultimately, it doesn't really matter, and that's probably why it's not explained. But he is there, and he does run into his love interest, uh, Betty Ross. And he's actually trying to avoid her. I think he doesn't want to bring her into the situation. What's your reading? Yeah, I mean, I would agree. And if you just if you follow their relationship, this is actually probably one of my one of my negatives of the movie. I think a lot of it worked, but I think there were a lot of a lot of missed character development or a lot of just misses in general that didn't work. So if you follow the relationship, so specifically what I'm talking about is he goes into the town and where Culver University is located, runs into Mr. Pizza Man. Um, we'll call him, we'll call him Mr. Papa, Papa John's, Papa John's himself. <laughs> right. And then et cetera, et cetera. Betty gets a little good look at him. And the next scene, he's just like walking on the side of the road. It's pouring rain. This car pulls in behind him and she gets out and you're like, okay, number one, how did you find them? Number two, it's pouring rain. How did you see him? Number three, how did you, why did you run up to him? He could be some homeless man that attacks you. Like that, that whole scene didn't necessarily work for me. What did you think? I think logically you might be right. It's kind of improbable that she would find him, but maybe he ran out and she immediately ran out to her car. Although to me, it looked like they had kind of walked to that pizza place. Mm. But let's say she did find him and all that's okay. Ultimately, the scene I think works. Sure. Except for she begs him to come back, which is great. You know, they like each other, but I'm feeling bad for her boyfriend that he, <laughs> she brought to the pizza place well, because she finds Bruce Banner and she looks like she's ready to take him back to bed. Well, and she does take him back to bed. As, as <laughs> Ultimately, we'll <discuss. laughs> that's true. But I, I, I feel bad for the boyfriend. She, she left him there and, you know, he's been good to her supposedly. So what's up with that? And I would agree with you, too. I mean, and you see later in the movie, there's a scene between the boyfriend, the shrink and General Ross, and he's defending both her and Bruce Banner. And so it's like, well, what's what's going on there? He's he's defending both of them. Right. So he's a pretty nice guy, it seems like. Yeah. And she's just ready to she go. She takes Bruce Banner back to his like, how does she explain that? Hey, I'm I'm, I'm taking my uh, my ex lover back to my home. <laughs> um, yeah. Have have fun this weekend because I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, initially I thought that they actually lived together, and he was bring she was bringing Bruce Banner back to the place where her boyfriend was going to be, which I thought was weird. But that ends up not being the case, and so the very next day he stays the night, and yep. the very next day he tells her that he, he's got to leave. So they get up early in the morning, classic, and they're walking across the Culver University campus, and. You know, she's kind of saying her goodbyes. She's fixing his shirt. She wants him to do well. And this is where we get, I guess, our second and maybe biggest action scene of the movie. I know it's one of the ones that they really focused on in the trailers. They did. And I'm going to have to pause you there because we did skip over a, a little scene that I wanted to mention. And that is that when he stays with Papa John's, um, he gets he asks for a favor, right? And that favor is to get into Culver university and it's at that scene where he, you know he brings a box of pizzas and we see um the actor from the 1970s tv show yeah lou ferrigno mm-hmm. back in the 70s you had two actors portraying the hulk you had bill bixby portraying not bruce banner but david banner 
because they thought that having two names that start with B was a little odd, so they changed his name. Mm-hmm. So you had Bill Bixby playing David Banner, and you had Lou Ferrigno, the big, massive bodybuilder, yep. who they painted green playing the Hulk. Exactly, right? And so he makes a little cameo. I thought that was a great nod to him. I also wanted to mention, I don't know if you caught this, so he, he gets into the computer lab trying to, you know, tr- which is that flashback. I think this ties in really well to those that opening crawl is you get a flashback and you go, okay, that was the laboratory that he turned into the Hulk where they did his experiments. Mm-hmm. So he tries to pull up the files, right, to retain them. Why they would still be in a database at a university, no idea. But he still tries to do it anyways. Um, and as he's logging into the computer, Norton Antivirus pops up. I it's did like notice that. <laughs> that gave me a little little chuckle. That was probably a, a, a screen rewrite of Norton's that they actually left in. Well, it might have been that, but it was probably a product tie-in. You know, a lot of these movies um, make deals with companies to put their product in the film so that they can get some money. They did it. Last time with Burger King was in Iron Man. I think Dr. Pepper might have been in there as well. This time, maybe it's Norton Antivirus, because that's a real product. It No, I know it is. And I thought that was that was a pretty pretty funny way to do that. And so we find ourselves, as you said, back on, I guess, the quad of the university, or at least a field around the university, the college. And here rolls up General Ross and his, his goonies. And they're they're ready to take down, ready to take down the Hulk. Now at this point, there's kind of this side story going on with the villain, um, who has now been powered up. Yes. So there's really two villains in this movie. The first one being General Ross, who we haven't mentioned. His motivation is that he wants to use the Hulk as a weapon. He wants to capture it and create more, and use it for the military. The other villain is this character that General Ross has brought in. He was one of the soldiers at that first confrontation in the bottling factory where he was trying to take down the Hulk. He survived, and he had a talk with General Ross, and General Ross basically gives him a serum to help power him up. Now, for a little side tidbit, the serum that he gives him, he mentions is from a super soldier program from World War II. That's actually the same program that ends up creating Captain America which we'll see in his movie. But he injects this serum into uh, the soldier, whose name is Emil Blonsky. Mm -hmm. And at this point, he's kind of powered up. He's stronger. He's faster. He doesn't look very good. He looks kind of sweaty, but he's still very much human. And what's interesting to note as well is that when General Ross is going to get that serum, is on the cover you see... I believe it it mentions something to the fact of a you know that super soldier serum or a replicant which is how the Hulk was created in this universe. In this universe they were experimenting with the gamma radiation to replicate the super soldier serum. It's the same motivation. Uh, General Ross was trying to create super soldiers using Bruce Banner. That failed. He's trying to create super soldiers using his own stuff. That's pretty much his motivation through this entire movie. Exactly. And this, again, going back to the comics, the origin story for the Hulk isn't isn't quite tied into Captain America. Um, more so, uh, it, you know, it's set in that time period where they're experimenting with a gamma bomb. It goes off. He jumps into a ditch and gets radiated. 
So uh, with this encounter, what did you think? Do you think it worked or not? So I think that this is probably the best action scene in the movie. We get another one at the end, but this one I think has more stakes. You've got Bruce Banner there. You've got his love interest there. You've got General Ross there, which is revealed in this scene. General Ross is his love interest's father. General Ross is Betty Ross's father. And that kind of adds another wrinkle to it. It's sort of hinted at before this, but they just keep calling him the general. And Mm -hmm. so it's never really stated. So you've got all three main characters there, as well as Emil, who is fighting the Hulk, which is really interesting because he's just a man. He runs up to him. um, He tries to run up before he's supposed to. General Ross stops him. And then he ends up going in later up against the Hulk. And this is a really intense scene. He goes up to a metal sculpture and he's on it and the Hulk tries to punch him and the Hulk ends up breaking off pieces and he grabs the pieces and tries to rip Emil's legs off using them. And I think that that was very intense, especially for a Marvel movie. What did you think? Yeah, you know, I thought as far as the action goes, I thought it was definitely one of the high points in the movie with you know everything going on and the ross definitely pulled out all the stops so you know you see he brings in the 50 cals those didn't work so then he brings in um the cannons and those work for a time right but as as you mentioned uh, in this iteration of the hulk he the angrier he gets the stronger he gets so he sees betty running um and getting restrained and so he becomes extremely angry right and so that's able to power him through these cannons and then finally they bring in a gunship um, that tries to take him down obviously now betty is also there and so ross tries to call it off to no avail um, but the hulk saves her yeah the gunship ends up crashing right where betty is and the hulk kind of wraps him uh self around her to protect her And you get what is probably, in my opinion, the best shot in the entire movie after this. Mm -hmm. There's there's fire and there's smoke coming up from the explosion. And the Hulk kind of just stands up and he's holding Betty in his arms. She's unconscious and he's just staring down General Ross. And I think it's beautiful. I think it's very well done. It looks great. The composition is really good. Um, And it holds there for a second. And then he kind of turns around and jumps away. Exactly. And as I said before, I think a lot of the shots did work. What I don't think worked very well for me in that scene is that they tried to add in drama with General Ross. And I it just fell flat for me. I was actually laughing at it. Uh, what I mean by that is that after every turn, after every time the Hulk was able to defeat the next level of kind of damage that they had, you would hear, you know, General Ross shouting for some vehicle. And then magically, like that instant, the vehicle would be jumping over a bush, right? So he'd be like, <laughs> get me the 50 cows. And then two 50 cows, you know, loaded on transports, jump over a bush all of a sudden. And sure. he's like, where are my cannons? And then the cannons come and jump, you know, jump over. And then finally he's like, where's my gunship? And then finally the gunship's coming in. And it's like, so instead of waiting for all military units to be ready and set it's like they're just arriving on the scene at that point so that didn't necessarily work but for the most part i mean if you ignore that the action sequence was definitely the best in the movie yeah that's a good point you bring up and it is a plot contrivance 
But for me personally, I think it worked really well. I thought it added a lot of tension, and it was nice to see what he was doing while all these other nameless soldiers were out there trying to take down the Hulk. So going to the, I guess, close to the third act of the movie, we see that you know Bruce Banner and Betty Ross finally meet up with Mr. Blue. Um, they want to kind of get rid of the Hulk um, that's in himself, and so they they do some analysis. He gets on a table. Um, Mr. Blue does his sciencey stuff. Um, what's interesting about this, this I guess this part of the film is that Mr. Blue is smarter than Bruce Banner. What did you think about that? You know, I've never really thought about that point, but you're right. He seems to know what's going on more than Bruce Banner does. And from a comics perspective, I don't think that works. It can probably be explained, though, by the fact that Bruce Banner has been hiding out. He had access to no equipment. We saw earlier in the movie he had a centrifuge that he made out of a bike tire. But this other character, Mr. Blue, he has an entire lab at a university. We end up seeing the spot where he injects Bruce Banner with a serum. That spot looks very expensive, if not old. Um, but it, it just proves that his resources are actually pretty vast. So I think it's actually more realistic than what we get a lot of times with movies. With movies, doctors are often seen as, one, they know everything. If you're a doctor, you can do medical stuff, you can do electronic stuff, you can do computer stuff. You know everything, which is not true. And two, within that, you know everything about everything in your topic without having to look it up. And that's just not true. You know, we as humans, we have to look things up. We have a limited capacity in our brains that we can remember or that we can take in information at a certain amount of time. Sure. And so I think it's very much more realistic that Mr. Blue has a lab and that he's able to come up with answers easier than Bruce Banner is because he's got the resources, he's got the time, and he's got the funding. And, you know, I would agree with you if we look at this movie just by itself. In the greater MCU, I don't think it makes much sense, um, especially when we see kind of Bruce Banner's portrayal in uh, Avengers and uh, the future installments, as well as, as you mentioned, when we look in, into the comics with Bruce Banner supposedly being one of the five smartest people on Earth, um, with the top three being usually Reed Richards, Bruce Banner, and Amadeus Chow in no particular order. Right. And there's a couple things in this movie that don't jive with the rest of the Marvel Universe movies that we get. And I do want to talk about those. I kind of want to save them till we're done with the film. But for this film itself, self-contained, I think it works fine. Sure. Now, picking up in the third act, Blonsky, if we kind of fast forward a little bit, Blonsky... Uh, captures both Bruce and Betty, um, kind of antagonizing Bruce, wanting the Hulk to come out. They're on a helicopter, and then Blonsky convinces Mister Blue that it, you know, he kind of wants some of that, some of that uh, Hulk juice, some of that green juice. He wants some of that. Yeah, and we should mention too that at the end of their last confrontation, their fight where the Hulk was trying to cut off his legs, um, he got kicked really hard by the Hulk and very painfully flung against a tree. He looked like he was dead. He wasn't, but all of the bones in his body were broken. They were pretty much turned to mush. Um, but because of the serum that he had been injected with, he ends up recovering, 
And because he recovers, General Ross is intrigued. He allows another transfusion of that same serum. Uh, and this time it's more intense. It has more effects. You see him walking up to a mirror and his skin starts to move. His bones start to move. You see his spine doing some weird stuff. So he's yep. been injected multiple times. And like you said, he does get, um, he convinces Mr. Blue to inject him with some of the Hulk's blood. And this turns him into the main physical threat for this movie, the Abomination, who I just want to point out is not named again in this movie. No, nope. Just like with Iron Man, Mr. Blue says it could be an Abomination. Exactly. And that's that's good to point out. And what's interesting, too, is that this movie um, does set up for a potential sequel with uh, Mr. Blue kind of falls down and um, some of that green juicy juice starts dripping onto his brain and his brain starts enlarging, which if you're familiar with comics is one of Hulk's villains is called the leader. And the leader is this, again, kind of greenish um, superhuman with high intelligence. And I believe that this actor was actually signed on to return in a sequel as the leader. Which takes us to our final encounter. So Bruce Banner's on the helicopter. He does the old, trust me, it's the only way I can save them. Jumps off the helicopter. Much, much, much later in our later podcasts, we'll talk about how this is made fun of in Thor Ragnarok. Um, but at the time, I thought it, it it went really well, right? It was, it was a pretty intense moment because he jumps, he doesn't turn, and then he hits the ground. And you're like, well, that's probably not it. But how maimed is he going to be? Right, and I think it works. Real, it works really well dramatically. I do wonder about the specifics of it because it looks like he hits the ground before he's transformed, and so he should be dead. I don't know how that works. But the whole reason he's trying to jump out of the helicopter to begin with is uh, the abomination has gone rogue. He's attacking the city. They're in New York at this point, uh, Harlem specifically, and. Bruce wants to go down there to stop him because, in his words, both him, Betty, and the general created the monster. That's right. So, I mean, he lands, obviously. He gets back up. You know, you you saw the scene a lot in trailers where they both jump at each other with the one-two punch. Mm -hmm. um, and then they start fighting. And I just forgot how much the abomination wrecks the Hulk in the first couple of minutes. He just demolishes him. Yeah, and I think that can be attributed to the fact that he's a soldier, and so he's had training, and so he actually knows how to do hand-to-hand -hand combat. We see a little bit earlier in the movie that Bruce has had some kind of training in martial arts uh, because he kind of disarms those bullies, uh, the gangsters, fairly quickly at one point. Uh, but he does get destroyed, and you know they kind of they fight for a while, um, and they have some fisticuffs. That's true. And what's interesting to note, too, um, on that point that you touched on, Caleb, is that the Hulk is not Bruce Banner, but he is. Right. And so when he changes, the Hulk is the Hulk. And so he he acts like the Hulk. He's a different person versus the abomination uh, is still Blonsky. Right. He can still talk. He can still he still has all those memories. He still talks just like Blonsky. And so while he retains all his prior training, the Hulk's just a completely different person, if you will. That's true. And he might not be 100% separate. Uh, there's always a question of how much of the Hulk is the Hulk and how much of the Hulk is Bruce Banner. 
and that changes depending on the film you're talking about or the comic you're talking about. But that is a really interesting point that Blonsky was able to retain his side of it. And if, you know, we kind of pull this back to that original serum, we'll see later in Captain America, that serum affects people in different ways. So it makes sense that Emil might retain all of his intelligence and the Hulk only retains some of it. Exactly. And so how did you think this, I guess, final battle ended with the abomination kind of, you know, you think he's defeated um, and the Hulk's going to save um, the Rosses, which, you know, he does with his thunderous clap, um, which side note, I'm amazed that they both can still hear and their eardrums didn't <laughs> get blown out. Um, but anyways, he, so he saves both of them and the abomination kind of chains him up, but he sees his, his true love, his, the, the true love that he can never touch because his heart rate gets, gets too high for any, <laughs> for any, uh, romantic stuff. Um, right. And then he becomes angry again and is able to defeat the abomination Did that work for you. Well, the first time I saw this movie, I was very excited on all this. I thought it was great. I thought it worked really well. This time, after having seen it a few times and having some distance, I had some issues with it. I felt like this went on for too long. Um, I felt, especially at this end scene, their movements are very weird. They're, they don't seem to have very much physicality to them. They're able to move incredibly fast and stop very quickly. And I just don't think that it's that interesting for most of the fight. There are some cool things that happen, but by and large, it's just for spectacle. There's not much drama here. Um, specifically when he ends up coming back and beating the abomination, there is one very brutal thing that I always remember, which is that he pulls a bone that's protruding out of the abomination's elbow. He pulls it out completely out of his arm and mm -hmm. he uses it to stab the abomination. And I think that's one really freaking awesome and two incredibly painful and cringy to watch. I, I would agree. I think one thing that does work well for me is that he utters his Hulk smash and then smashes his two arms, um, you know, to the ground to create that wave that um, helps defeat the abomination. And for me that, you know, that works um, with the buildup and with the fight uh, between both of those characters. Yeah, and he does only have a couple lines in this movie. He has Hulk smash um, at the very beginning when we see him, actually before we see him for the first time, it's really faint, but he says, leave me alone. I don't know if you caught that. Yep. Um, and then he's got another line at one point, but for the most part, the Hulk does not speak in this movie. No, no, he does not. And so, you know, after that final battle, the abomination is kind of, is kind of left there. Hulk's just kind of like doping around because he's the Hulk. But what did you think of the actual, well, not, I guess, the actual final scene, but the second to last scene where it's, it looks like it's a few months past. Um, he's now somewhere remote. He's, he's been, kind of been, been jogging, been exercising, um, focusing his chi, his tai chi, his chakra, his, you know, Hulkiness. Di his diaphragm, which I must say at the beginning was very disgusting with the guy that could <laughs> alter his diaphragm. I never liked that scene. Um, and you're right, he's sitting there, and then it has the dooms, as I call it, the doomsday clock, the days without incident, and it goes down back down to zero, and his eyes turn green, right? And so mm -hmm. with the assumption at the end is that he can now control it. I think this is a great tie-in into the Avengers movie, and I think the Avengers movie handles this well, because it assumes that he can now control his Hulk ability. I agree. I think that that's how I always took the scene, um, but... 
the director actually said this was meant to be ambiguous where you can take it as he got control and he could be a teammate in the Avengers or his next film, or you could see it as he's transforming, but he might still not have control and he could be a villain in the Avengers or he could be a villain in a different movie. Now, interestingly enough, that is not the last scene, but the last scene is one with our one and only Robert Downey Jr. So was this added on um, post-production or did they always plan to add the scene on? This scene was added after Iron Man was such a success. This was not something they planned on adding. And this is kind of why I was wondering earlier if those callbacks to S.H.I.E.L.D. and Iron Man in the intro were added afterwards. Because I know specifically this scene was filmed afterwards. And it's interesting because they put this at the very end of the movie. Making this movie the only MCU movie with no post credit scene. That's right, because they wanted to make sure people actually caught this scene. It would be my assumption. Yeah, they wanted to make people excited. Now, the problem with this scene is, as the MCU kind of moves along, it ends up not making a lot of sense. Right, because he goes to General Rask's, asks him for a uh, that he has a uh, character that he, uh, he wants on the team, right? Which the only person General Rask has under his thumb would be the Abomination. Right. So they ended up making a little thing on a DVD to change what this scene means. But at the time, everybody was just excited that they were trying to put a team together. Right. So they, they eventually retconned it, but I thought it worked well. I remember I, I saw it and it, it created some hype. And so um, it, it worked well. And uh, Caleb, on, on your note, too, about the if they added the shield um, stuff at the beginning, um, if you'll remember, they actually also have a fairly large portion um, that ties into S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, in the middle of the movie. When they're trying to find Bruce Banner, they put him, they put Mr. Green and Mr. Blue in the database, and that's how they're able to track him down. That's true, which I do have some logistical questions about because we see later how S.H.I.E.L.D. is ran. And it's supposed to be an independent organization, so I'm not sure how the military has access to their database. Exactly. Both the military and FBI as it goes straight to the FBI headquarters, headquarters, I believe. That's true. But for this movie, it works fine. It does. And so when we look at, I guess, kind of winding down, looking at the movie in general, this darker movie, why do you think that this movie is probably one of the least viewed movies in the MCU? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. My memory was that The Dark Knight came out before this film, and it overshadowed this film. That is not the case. This came out before The Dark Knight. So I think part of it is the push was Iron Man, right? Iron Man, Iron Man, Iron Man. And when it came out, it was a massive hit. And a lot of people just don't go to the movies that often. And it was only a month before this came out. Another reason is a lot of people hated that 2003 Ang Lee Hulk movie. And I think they were burned on it. They didn't want to see it. And, you know, even going forward, this movie doesn't make a lot of impact on the MCU as a whole. Uh, We'll talk about it later. But it's kind of self-contained. And some people were even wondering if it was actually canon until a couple years ago. You know, I would would agree with you um, on all those major points. And I think also in general that this movie isn't necessarily seen as an MCU movie is that people don't necessarily view it as tied into that greater Marvel picture. 
Um, now, some of that is that you have different actors playing Bruce Banner, but I think a lot of that is that this movie is, is simply darker, is that it doesn't have the Marvel tone that you feel in a lot of the later movies. That's true. It does feel very different. And because of that, I'm not sure, like you mentioned, that a lot of people know it's part of the MCU. Now, Kayla, would you think this would have movie had done better if we had actually seen a Edward Norton movie? Because as we've talked about it, even though he did a page one rewrite, 70 minutes of this movie were cut. In fact, him and uh, the director uh, both petitioned. They wanted a cut that I believe was about two hours, 20 minutes, two hours, 30 minutes. That's right. And Marvel and Kevin Feige actually put their foot down and said no it's gonna we want a short succinct movie uh and thus we got the only hour and 52 minute movie that we got and i guess that's you know that's what we ended up with but do you think a uh edward norton cut would have been a better movie honestly i don't think so um and this kind of ties into my thoughts about the movie as a whole while it's enjoyable and i recommend people watch it especially if they want to see all the mcu movies I don't think it holds up super well on repeat viewings. It's just fine. It's not great. A lot of this movie is a love story, which we didn't really talk about, between Bruce Banner and Betty Ross. And I feel that that's not super interesting the way they handle it. I think the end fight scene goes on too long. And so I think that if Edward Norton was going to make a difference, it would have been things like that that would have shown through in this cut of the movie. They had time to do some very interesting things with, and they did some. But by and large, I don't think that they utilized it in the best possible way that they could have. So no, I don't really think that we should have seen an entire Edward Norton cut of this film, but I think the stuff that he did bring probably helped make it better. Yep, and I would have to agree. Unfortunately... If you would randomly pull up IMBD, um, as we mentioned, and you look at who wrote The Incredible Hulk, Zach Penn is stated as having both the screenplay and the screen story for this movie. And so Edward Norton, you know, was kind of not not cast out, but he was overlooked when um, it, it came around to, to awarding accolations of who actually wrote the movie. Yeah, and... Reports said that he was not happy about this and he was very upset about it. The Writers Guild came out and said that they look at plot and structure more than they do dialogue. And apparently dialogue was a lot of what he changed. So they didn't give him that writing credit. But, you know, as we'll talk about later, this kind of drove a wedge between him and Marvel and caused partially the reason why Marvel ended up recasting the role of Bruce Banner for the Avengers which we'll talk about in a later podcast that you can check out on any of our podcasting channels. That's right. Plug it. <laughs> well, Caleb, to wrap this up, I thought it'd be fun to kind of do a little, a little trivia uh, about the movie. I know we both had, both had prepped some questions and if you're listening into this, we'll give you some time to see if you can, you can guess the questions as well. So Caleb, why don't you, uh, why don't you start us off? All right, so mine might be a little bit more difficult because it's not actually in the movie itself. But I thought it was a really great tidbit of trivia. Well, that's cheating, but go ahead. <laughs> so um, before this movie was released, and even for several years afterwards, there were two other 
superheroes that were rumored to be in this film. Do you know who they were? You know, I'm going to have to say Doc Sampson, because I know that he was supposed to be in this film. And I'm going to go ahead and just say Iron Man, because it came out close. Okay. Neither of those are correct. Oh. <laughs> so the first one is actually in that cut scene that we talked about earlier. It's Captain America. It's mm. very faint, but if you look in that scene, uh, the Hulk ends up smashing the ice, and it all comes up. And you can see Captain America frozen in the ice, which is cool, but it would have messed up their Captain America movie later. However, the one that I really thought was interesting is for a long time, people thought that Thor was in this movie. Do you remember that? I remember hearing some rumors um, and reading, uh, you know, a couple articles about it. So, yeah. Yeah. So basically the idea is the scene where Hulk is with Betty after they've ran away from that middle fight, they're um, kind of under uh, a rock formation and it's raining. It thunders and there's lightning and in the background. You can see something fall from the sky and forever mm. people were saying that is Thor falling to the earth. Ultimately it's not because they're not in the right location. And we didn't find that out until the Thor movie itself came out, but that was a really big theory for a long time. All right. My question for you, go for it. When we see Stanley grab the pop and drink it to his death, which level is the pop at in the fridge? Is it on the top shelf, the second shelf, the third shelf, or the bottom shelf? Why would you pick such a hard question? <laughs> I had uh, to. Um, I think it's in the middle. And eh, incorrect. He actually picks it up from the complete bottom shelf that has uh, about six other of the same pops. He could have lived a long six other days, and yet he chose <laughs> he chose the wrong one. Uh, oh, well. But that's good. Well, overall, to, to end our podcast, Caleb, where would you put the incredible Hulk and our list of movies right now. We only have one sitting at the dock with Iron Man. So does the incredible Hulk beat Iron Man or would you put Iron Man in front of the Hulk? As I mentioned before, I think the Hulk is a completely serviceable movie, but it's just not amazing, especially on repeat viewings. So for those reasons, it's below Iron Man. So my list right now would be Iron Man. Number one, the incredible Hulk. Number two, what about you? And Caleb, I would have to agree with your assessment. Watching Iron Man, as we've talked about, was a very enjoyable experience. I can't say the same for the Hulk. While I did like the movie, I definitely caught myself um, writing notes for this podcast or kind of wondering in La La Land um, just because I got bored with different elements of it. And so I would definitely say Iron Man is number one and The Incredible Hulk is number two. Right. And you're right. I think it does drag a little bit, but that's okay. Real quick before uh, we sign off, I did want to mention um, the future of the Hulk. And I just wanted to talk about real quick a couple of inconsistencies. So one of the big things that they kind of drop later in the MCU is you see throughout this movie, Bruce Banner has a heart monitor on his wrist. It's a watch. And if it gets to 200 beats per minute, then he turns into the Hulk. Traditionally, this is not how he turns into the Hulk. The thing that causes him to turn into the Hulk is anger. And I think what this movie is trying to get at is that when you're angry, your heart rate rises, and that's kind of what triggers the transformation. However, I don't really like that explanation because there's a couple scenes like 
when him and Betty are, you know, trying to get it on, uh, his heart rate raises and he says he'll turn into the Hulk. And normally he would not turn into the Hulk. In later movies, you never see this concept come back again. He only turns into the Hulk when he's angry. So this is a concept that worked for the movie, and I know why they did it. They did it to show us, you know, give us a ticking time bomb. Let it ratchet up the tension. The higher that number gets, the more that we're going to feel the tension of these moments. But ultimately, they drop this, and it's just not something we see again. Another thing that they dropped, and I've never really noticed this before, is the Hulk gets hurt in this film. And I don't mean that he gets punched and he doesn't get back up. What I'm saying is he gets cut. His skin gets torn apart and ripped open. And it happens a lot. If you watch him, after that middle fight scene, when he takes Betty and they go to that rock formation, you can see the cuts and abrasions on his skin. You can also see it at the end, especially when the abomination... Um, uses his elbow and cuts a hole in the Hulk's chest. In later movies, the Hulk is very difficult to hurt in this way. You can punch him, you can attack him, and he might not get up again, but his skin usually does not break. And I thought that was something that's really interesting is how they dealt with that power level. And he seems to become more like the comics in the later movies where he doesn't get hurt as easily. But we'll talk about all these changes and more as we go into later episodes. So make sure you come back and listen, and we'll see you next time. Stay nerdy. Well, before we go, I do want to say thank you to Taylor Poole for our intro music. Uh, He's phenomenal, and you can find him at taylorpoolmusic.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-P-O-O-L-E music.com. Thanks for listening to our Road to Marvel's Infinity War, The Incredible Hulk. You can find us on iTunes and any other major podcasting networks. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and any other social networking sites at Cuz We're Nerds. That's C-U-Z-W-E-R-E-N-E-R-D-S. Tune in next week as we discuss Iron Man 2. Did this movie introduce Black Widow and Nick Fury in the correct way? Does this movie deserve all the negative feedback it got? And how does our favorite drunk of the MCU handle himself? Find these answers and more on Cuz We're Nerds, Road to Marvel's Infinity War.